this afternoon, uh, I'm going to do one of the craziest things you've ever seen a preacher do. Years from now, you'll be able to say that I once heard a lunatic uh, preach on Saturday afternoon. The uh, crazy thing I'm going to do is preach from the book of Leviticus <laughs> on Saturday afternoon. And a lot of people say, oh, no, that's the driest book in the Bible. I will surely die before this is over with. You know, there's an old joke. I'm sure everybody's heard it, so I hate to tell it, about the uh, father and his son were driving past a cemetery one day, and the little boy looked over there and saw all those military crosses. He asked, Dad, what happened to them? He says, son, they died in the service. And the boy said, it must have been the Saturday afternoon service. <laughs> but if you think that uh, the book of Leviticus is a dry book, I want you to consider what the Lord said to the Jews in Isaiah chapter 28. The Lord said to the Jews that teaching the Jews the Word of God was like teaching line upon line, line upon line, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little. And what he meant by that is that the Word of the Lord had to be taught to them as though they were little children. In a very simplistic and repetitive manner. And of course, uh, Paul had the same complaint. The book of Hebrews, chapter 5, he told them that you're like children and are in need of milk and not of strong meat. Then Isaiah, back to his 28th chapter, said that the word of the Lord was under them, line upon line, precept upon precept. That is, the word of the Lord to them was dull, it was monotonous. The word of the Lord unto them was always as if it were Saturday afternoon. And you may ask, how can anyone perceive the Bible to be a dull and monotonous book? And my answer is very simple. Just take Jesus Christ out of it, and that's what you will have. And that's the problem that they have. You can't say, if I didn't have the New Testament, I would just follow the Old, because if you don't have the New Testament, the Old Testament doesn't make much sense. It's a lot of unfulfilled promises and prophecies and meaningless symbolism. And I will promise you that the book of Leviticus will come alive when you put Christ in the book. And I want to talk to you about the 16th chapter of the book of Leviticus. And I won't be long this afternoon, I hope not. But in this 16th chapter, we're going to talk about the Day of Atonement. This was, uh, by some metrics, as high a day as there was. This was the only day of the year in which the high priest could enter into the holiest of holies of the tabernacle. But before I get on the procedure that took place on this Day of Atonement, let me talk to you a little bit about the tabernacle itself. A lot of people think that the tabernacle was 
an old-fashioned inferior form of worship that was later replaced with the temple. Let me tell you exactly the opposite was true. The temple was man's idea. The tabernacle was God's idea. We're not given much detail about the construction of the temple because the details don't matter. On the tabernacle, we're given much detail because here the details do matter. They were ordained by God. And I'm not going to go through all the detail, but I want to tell you generally about the tabernacle. And uh, let's begin by supposing that you are outside the tabernacle facing the front door, and we're going to go on a straight line journey to and through that tabernacle, and I want to talk to you about uh, the things you're going to see. The first thing you're going to encounter is uh, a brazen altar. This was in the courtyard about the tabernacle. This was where sacrifices were offered. And as you're walking uh, on this journey I'm going to take you, in my opinion, you're walking a timeline. You're taking the same path along which God would carry religion over the history of the world. Uh, the first era of religion was characterized by sacrifice. Going all the way back to Abel, early in the book of Genesis. So here we have... Uh, this brazen altar where sacrifices were offered. Now you move a bit forward, and you'll come to a brazen laver where the priests would wash before they would actually enter into the tabernacle itself. Remember, we're in the courtyard of the uh, tabernacle still. So here they would wash, wash themselves from uh, the blood that might or be on their hands and such from offering the sacrifice. Well, in our next era of religion, we're going to have the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, we undergo a washing, a baptism before we enter. It's not a putting away of the filth of the flesh, says the Bible, but it is the answer of a good conscience towards God. Now we step into the tabernacle or the part that's called the sanctuary. And when you step inside uh, this tent, indeed uh, uh, it was a tent, and it was one that from the outside would not have appeared very impressive. But on the inside, you're going to see beautiful things. And uh, the first room we stepped into is a representation of the church. It's not too beautiful on the outside either. But it's a beautiful place when you step on the inside. And when you step on the inside, you're going to see three things. One over here uh, to the left, one over here to the right, and one straight ahead. On one side, you're going to see the showbread. The twelve loaves of the showbread. And you'll say, what does that mean? We'll go over and read John 6. We'll find out what that means. Jesus is the bread of life. And uh, over there he talked about how that uh, the manna was a form of bread that came down from heaven. He too came down from heaven. 
but he was a far superior bread. Those who ate of the manna had a good story to tell, but they had just a few years to tell it. They would still die. He that eateth of the bread that is Christ shall live forever. So we see the bread on one side, picture of our Savior. Now when we move to the other side, here with the golden candlestick. And it's on account of the light from the golden candlesticks that we can see the bread. The room would be dark if it were not for the golden candlestick. These are uh, representations of the Holy Spirit of God. Now we look straight ahead and we see what was called the altar of incense. And just beyond the altar of incense, there's a room called the holiest of hope. And you can't go in there. No one can go in there except the high priest. But the Bible has told us what was in the holiest of hopes. First of all, this altar of incense. Uh, in the Bible, incense is used to represent the prayers of God's people. There are going to be some very important things taking place in that holiest of holies. Some of the highest symbols of our Savior and his sacrifice in all the Bible. Uh, but before we get there, we're going to have to go by this symbol of prayer. And in the Bible, as the aroma of the incense emerges to God, it's a sweet-smelling savor. This is representing the prayers of his people unto him. And think about all the prayers over all the ages of the millions of children of God who have prayed to him for forgiveness. I suspect there's not been a day of your life when you have not prayed to God for forgiveness. Uh, I've called upon countless people to pray in church. They prayed for our forgiveness. All the prayers that God would make me better than what I am. I become very frustrated with what I am at times. I think you do too. Lord, make me better. Make me a better servant of Jesus Christ. Forgive me for all of my failures. Well, my friends, as the incense emerges from that altar unto God, you're seeing the Lord about to answer every one of those prayers prayed by every one of his elect over the entire uh, history of the world. Now, when we step into that holiest holies, we are in a symbol of heaven. And again, look at the path that we're taking here. Sacrifices, church, heaven. Law, grace, heaven. When we get into the holiest of holies, the thing that we'll see before us is the Ark of the Covenant. And this is a golden box. And down inside this box are the two stone plates of the law. And I'm sure archaeologists would love to find those two plates, no telling how many millions of dollars those plates would be worth if somebody could find them. They're really, uh, I honor them, but I don't want them. I'll let you have them. Because they are a symbol of the condemnation and ruin of man. Uh, that's why the law was given, so that all every mouth would become would be stopped, and all the world would become guilty of 
before God. Those two plates were stored down inside this Ark of the Covenant. But thank God there's more to it. There is a table on top of that Ark of the Covenant of equal dimensions with the box beneath. That table is called the mercy seat. Called the mercy seat. And when the high priest does his offering inside of the uh, holiest of holies, he's going to sprinkle blood on that mercy seat. And uh, that mercy seat is of the exact dimensions as the box beneath, meaning it completely covers that law. He's saved on account of the mercy seat. Now on either side of the mercy seat, there were two cherubims. These are heavenly beings who are looking down upon the mercy seat. And uh, over in Hebrews, I believe, 9.15, where Paul was explaining what many of these things uh, represent, when he got to these cherubims, he said, of this I cannot now speak particularly. And I've heard a few people actually say from the pulpit that not even poor old Paul knew what those cherubims uh, represented. I don't agree with that. I think he knew exactly what they represented. And I think he told us, albeit in another place. So we get over into the book of Ephesians. He makes a very outstanding statement. This will be in chapter 3. We will begin at verse 8. Ephesians 3, 8. Unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ. Now the next verse is the one I want. To the intent now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. And what he just said there is that heavenly creatures, the angels of the cherubim, are looking down from heaven upon this world, the workings of Christ, and the teachings of his church to learn the manifold wisdom of God. That's a little hard to comprehend, isn't it? You know, if you're not praising God for your salvation, you ought to be ashamed because the angels of God in heaven are praising Him for your salvation. They sure are. And uh, as Isaiah 6, you'll have one of the greatest visions of all time where he saw the Lord high and lifted up. And what he's seeing here is the ascending Jesus Christ. Above him, there's cherubim, you remember, looking down. See, the same kind of arrangement we have on this Ark of the Covenant. Holy, holy, holy. So these cherubim, if I understand it, are looking down upon this mercy seat because the uh, angels of God in heaven, the cherubim there, they look with great interest upon the workings of Christ and his church 
and its teachings as they seek to learn about things that ought to be precious to us as well. So these are uh, the broad details concerning the tabernacle, how it was structured, maybe some other things I should mention, but now let's move on to the Day of Atonement, which would be the only day out of the year that anyone could enter into that holiest of holies, and this had to be the high priest. I want to talk to you about the procedure he had to follow as presented in Leviticus chapter 16. The first thing that is significant about God's instruction would be in what the priest was to wear. Now, if you were not a Christian, uh, not acquainted with the ways of the Bible, you would think that since the priest this day is performing perhaps the highest honor, that uh, it would ever be his privilege to perform, that he would wear his most glorious garb upon this occasion. In fact, that's not what he was to do. He was to take it off. And he put on the ordinary garment of an ordinary priest. Now that baffled a lot of people. But it shouldn't baffle you. Because as he goes, makes his offering in the holiest of holies, he is representing the Lord Jesus Christ, who before the eye was an ordinary man. And all I assume are familiar with that famous text in Isaiah 53, that said, He hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. In fact, the New Testament never says a word about his appearance. We don't know if he was tall, short, dark hair, medium dark hair. Uh, these are things we don't know. And in fact, uh, I only know of one place where the New Testament comments on anyone's appearance. Can you think of that? Uh, told you that Zacchaeus was short. All right, now I realize that uh, over in 2 Corinthians, Paul said that people said of him that his bodily presence was weak and his speech was contemptible. I don't know if that's true or not. That's just what people said. But we are told that Zacchaeus was short, and you wouldn't have even been told that had it not been for the fact that I was trying to explain to you why he climbed up a tree to see Jesus. You see, and I guess the reason I'm talking about all this, we're supposed to be living in this world. Uh, we're supposed to be living in a country where we're supposed to lay our racism aside. Uh, you know, we're supposed to be bad racists and we need to repent of all this. And yet when I watch people on TV, it's black this and white that and black this and white that all the time. Why do you keep bringing it up if we're supposed to be laying it aside? Here, I fill out even government forms, and I'm supposed to put down there if I'm black or Caucasian or Hispanic. What business is it of theirs? What does it matter? You know, the crazy thing is you got forms now. It'll ask you if you're male or female, or do you prefer not to say? But you still got to tell them whether you're black or white. 
There's only one truly non-racist institution on this earth. It's the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the New Testament didn't even comment on people's color. It just tells you Zacchaeus was short, wouldn't even done that. If it had to been trying to explain why he climbed up a tree so he could see Jesus Christ. The high priest representing our Savior came into the world as a plain and poor man, a man of sorrow and acquainted as grief. Surely he was not wearing a spectacular robe when he hung on the cross. Now, uh, the priest puts on his ordinary priest attire. And the first thing he's got to do is make an atonement for himself. Now you may ask, what does that represent in Jesus Christ? And the answer is that represents nothing in Jesus Christ. And uh, when you're studying types and shadows in the Bible, you have to know that they're not only comparisons, but there's also contrasts or differences. Over in Romans 5, Paul told you that Adam was a figure of him who is to come, a figure of Christ. But Paul spent more time talking about how Adam was different from Christ than how that they were the same. So this priest, he has to make an offering for himself. And Paul talks about this uh, in Hebrews 4 and 5. At, at the end of 4, he talks about how that we have a high priest who's gone into heaven, not merely into the symbol of heaven, the holiest of holies, but he's gone into heaven itself. He was tempted in all points, as we are, but without sin. And therefore we have a high priest who could be touched by the feelings of our infirmity. Let us therefore come boldly, not defiantly, but confidently to the throne of grace as we ask for forgiveness, ask for strength, direction, guidance, etc. So this high priest we have is without sin. Now we move into Hebrews 5. He talks about how the it's the function of the priest to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins that he's chosen from among men, having infirmity, that he may have uh, sympathy on others who have infirmities, and that because of his own infirmities, he opts for himself, as well as for the people, to make an offering for sin. So this would be that the First thing that the high priest would do, he would make an offering for himself, and this would entail going into the holiest of holies. And we'll talk about that for a moment, or in a moment. The next thing, he made an offering for the nation, the people. And here the procedure becomes very peculiar. They were to take two goats. Now, here's one thing you've got to get out of your mind. A lot of people think goats are inherently bad in the Bible. Uh, that's, not, that's not true. Now, in Matthew 25, you've got the sheep and the goats. I understand that. But uh, in the rest of the Bible, we do not have a policy of using goats to represent uh, all that. That's just how it's done there. Goats were 
commonly used as offerings. So they were to get two goats. And uh, the Jews would traditionally try to get two goats that were near identical. And they were to bring them before the tabernacle. Then they would cast lots on these two goats. And the lots would dictate which of these goats will be sacrificed and which will be free. All right, now, uh, I'm sure there's people in the world that will say, oh, those lots, or those dice. Uh, that shows there's chance elements in salvation. That's, that's what that's perfect to show. A lot of people would think that. Uh, let me tell you that uh, the intent was to teach exactly the opposite of that. Because uh, when lots would be cast into the Bible, uh, the attitude usually was, this is a decision that's too big for us to make. We're therefore turning this over to God. You remember they did it on the boat where Jonah was? They cast lots. Uh, this, this is a decision that's too much for us. We're putting this in God's hands. So we're not teaching any chance here. Also, these two goats are really representing the same event. They're representing different aspects of the same event. All right, so uh, one goat is to be offered. His blood was to be taken into the holiest of holies after incense was offered. The blood would be sprinkled on the mercy seat. Then we go back and we take the other goat. And the priest would put his hands on the head of that goat and they would transfer all the sins of Israel on this goat. This goat is called the scapegoat. That's what the Bible calls it. Some people think that the first scapegoat was Donald Trump. That's not true. He's not the first scapegoat. Scapegoat came from Leviticus 16. They were to transfer the sins of Israel onto this goat. He was to be taken into a land uninhabited, an uninhabited land, released, never to be seen again. And a lot of people have argued about exactly what that scapegoat represents. I don't want to claim I know everything, but uh, I surely think he is conveying this idea here. You may ask the question, where are my sins now? You once bore them, and you would have borne them with eternal consequences. They were then put on Jesus. Jesus took them upon himself. So you may ask, where are they now? Must Jesus eternally bear them? Must he uh, endure eternal consequences as we would have? And the scapegoat is answering you, or answering for you that question. Your sins are in oblivion. They're gone. Jesus bore them once. He died. He put them away. You know, I get thinking about all the things I'm convicted over in my 63 years, things I've done wrong, and the idea that all that has just been sent into oblivion 
by the blood that was sprinkled on the mercy seat. That is such a a wonderful idea that I would surely say it's too good to be true. And I wouldn't believe it were it not for one thing. I found it in the Bible. That's the only place I could have read these things and came away believing in the Bible. You know, I look at a lot of religion that's in the world, and to me it's just a bunch of wishful thinking. That's all it is. They believe that stuff because they want to believe it. They do not have anything to corroborate, substantiate their beliefs. It's wishful thinking. And I'll tell you, the story of Jesus Christ is too good to believe unless you read it in the Bible. All right, now, uh, the last of all, I'm going to finish here. Last of all, the priest does something that's unexpected. He has to make atonement for the tabernacle itself. Not that it was an unclean thing, but the people were unclean. He's got to make an atonement for the altar, make an atonement for the sacrifice. And uh, you may be thinking, now that's peculiar. Shouldn't you have done that first? Shouldn't you have cleaned this place up first before you did all these other things? But instead he does it last. And I'm going to tell you what I think uh, that's conveying to us. The Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, is worthy to be praised. He should be worshipped. But probably the problem is I'm not worthy of doing it. Or you. I'm not even worthy to utter the name Jesus Christ. He's been given a name above every name. You remember when Isaiah saw him high and lifted up over in chapter 6? He said, woe is me. This is a story that needs to be told, and it needs to be told all over the world. But who can tell it? Because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I'm in a nation of unclean lips. Nobody is worthy to tell it. And so then the angel came and put the coal on his lips, and uh, the angel said, all right, we fixed you where you can go tell it. I believe in this last phase where atonement is being made for the place of worship itself, God is rendering us acceptable to praise his son for what he's done because uh, there's no way I could do even that without the grace and mercy of God Almighty. And I hope that uh, in the future it will be more the case with you and more the case with me that the word of the Lord will not be unto you line upon line, line upon line, precept upon precept, precept upon precept. But you'll realize that when Christ is put in it, it becomes alive. And not only should we be willing to praise Jesus Christ, hear more about him, but we ought to realize it's a great privilege and blessing and it's something that we don't deserve. We don't even deserve for our lips to even sing praise to his name. But an atonement was made for the place of worship. Thank you very much for your invitation.
And uh, we do hope that y'all come visit us at Grace Primitive Baptist Church when opportunity presents itself.